Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. It is Halloween, Monday, October 31st, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, there's so much to talk about. I don't know where to start. Uh, so we can start with the um, horrible attack on uh, Paul Pelosi, the husband of Nancy Pelosi, in their house in San Francisco in the middle of the night, I guess, Friday night, Saturday morning, um, attacked with a hammer by a schizophrenic of some sort um, who's deranged uh posts and uh, opinions and theories have been excavated pretty thoroughly already uh, over the last 48 hours and then i guess the the over the overriding question is is this was this attack the result of the atmosphere of increased of, of negative polarization leading to leading to this uh idea that it's okay or it's the meat and proper to physically attack uh, politicians for their opinions and views and she wasn't there so he attacked paul pelosi instead or was something else going on and we find ourselves in a weird position where leaks were coming out from the san francisco police department that the san francisco district attorney seems to be at pains to uh, discount or discredit about other people or other another person being present at the time that this attack took place on on Paul Pelosi, who is 82 years old, um, and uh, leading everybody to speculate that something more complicated was going on than this, you know, narrative of the political attack on Nancy Pelosi that turned into an attack on Paul Pelosi. Uh, so I don't even know if we can even say now that that's real because <clears throat> we have an on-the-record statement by the San Francisco District Attorney saying it's not real. There was no other person there, and we only knew that there. We only thought that there was another person there because somebody told Tom Winter of NBC News that there was a third person there. So maybe this entire second line of inquiry about this being a more complicated event should be disposed of entirely. What do you guys think, Christine? Should we like no one? Yeah, even... I I think the conspiracy theorizing that and the speculation that everybody's doing on the record should just stop. I mean, whatever theories people want to circulate um, in private is one thing, but we have to go with what we're told by law enforcement. Law enforcement can be wrong. People can cover things up. That happens all the time, particularly in uh, cities dominated by one political party when very powerful people get into trouble, but we don't know that. What we know is what the statement uh, was made by law enforcement. I will say though, it, it, this has brought up this, you, your first question about, is this a sign of the increasing polarization? Absolutely. And there is a continuum that that developed. I remember us sitting here on this podcast talking about a lot of Democrats encouraging fellow Democrats to confront Trump administration members when Trump was president, say, going up, go up to them in restaurants, yell at them, tell them how you feel. And, and 
we sort of, we lamented that. We're like, this is not how we should be behaving in a pluralistic democracy. We shouldn't be attacking people when they're in private. We shouldn't be attacking their private homes, threatening their children or making, even putting their children in a position where they're fearful. But we have seen, and this is definitely a both sides problem. Both sides have been doing this. I think right now what's fascinating to watch is the mainstream media in particular trying to argue that the glorification of violence is a right-wing problem only, that this is not, the left-wing might might try to assassinate Supreme Court justices and might try to shoot con, con, Republican congressmen, but, you know, they don't glorify violence. I think that's really trying to parse details. This is a serious cultural problem now for this country, and serious people on both sides need to be calling it out consistently and rigorously. And this is and saying time and time again, whether you're the president or you're uh, just a you know modest little representative in the House, you should always call out political violence, whether it's committed against your side or against the other side. And I have not seen that consistently among some of the leadership on on both sides of the aisle, and it's a problem. These people, whatever his paranoia or his mental health issues, he became radicalized in some way enough that he went and broke into this house and and tried to kill someone. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable that a man got a lot of assassination gear and thought he was going to kill a sitting Supreme Court justice. This is bad. And it's it's not a partisan issue. It is a cultural violence issue that we need to be discussing consistently. And Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of hope that we can do that in this environment, but that is what we need to do. So the suspect clearly seems mental, mentally ill. Um, and that doesn't mean that this is an issue that's separated from our uh, political rhetoric and from the political temperature of the culture, because the mentally ill have different filters from healthy people. So when they when they are party to the same discussions and to the same atmosphere, that we are, they take it differently. And it's particularly reckless not to be cognizant of that at a time when we have a rising mental health crisis. Um, There are more and more young, mentally ill people with fewer and fewer um, resources with a a less effective sort of uh, network than there has been before to help them. There's a tragically human response that happens every time we get one of these acts of targeted political violence or not targeted political violence, frankly. Um, 2020 was a year of mass political violence. It was not just it was just not targeted or it didn't seem especially targeted. But two things that we do. The first is we seek patterns, try to find patterns in disparate and tropic events and make them make sense. So we try to impose a rational worldview, a rational political outlook on people who have no rational political outlook, obviously. And the second thing we want to do is interdict whatever this event, how this event occurred. And we know that no one is listening to us who's mentally ill. And we know that the shameless conspiracy theorists aren't listening to us. So who do we yell at? Ad makers. People who cut spots, 30-second spots for Republicans. Um, the only people, Glenn Youngkin. People who are actually listening to you. Because the people you actually want to reach are not. It's a desperate, flailing attempt to achieve agency at a time when agency is not in your, nothing is in your control. And it's a very human reaction, but it's not productive. So we went through a sustained period of political violence in the targeted political violence in the United States uh, in the 1960s through 1981, when Ronald Reagan's, uh, the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, which really brought a period to the, to the close. So we had, um, Martin Luther King and and uh, Bobby Kennedy. We had well, okay. We had John F. Kennedy first, 
Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in 68. We had George Wallace in 72. We had two assassination attempts in 17 days on Gerald Ford, both by members of the Manson family in 1975. And then, of course, we had Reagan in 81. Um, all of those were reflective of a country, if you want to say, Kennedy, maybe not, but the country was spinning out of control, and these assassination attempts were a were a key element of the sense that everything was spinning out of control. And in, in several cases here, they weren't political in the way that we would understand political, right? I mean, the uh, Hinckley assassinated, tried to assassinate Reagan to get Jodie Foster's attention. The Manson family, the two Manson family members who tried to assassinate Gerald Ford were part of some incoherent psychopathic cult. Um, it's not clear that Arthur Bremer, who tried, who, who uh, paralyzed uh, George Wallace was not anything more than a, than a schizophrenic. Um, but nonetheless, this idea that they were going to target these politicians and get them um became uh, uh became not just a symbol but evoked the feeling that something had sort of slipped beyond the grasp of you know sort of like a civilized society and that we were going feral and which was also true of crime in the 1970s so i don't think you can look at the last four or five years and say that there isn't something very analogous going on and particular because people are going after people that classic assassins who wanted the world's attention would have been aiming higher right I, like I mean, people you, canvassing mean, for a candidate right They're yeah exactly like people, so yeah. you go sh you want to shoot up the congressional you go and shoot up the congressional softball game or you're going after the speaker of the house or your Rand Paul's next door neighbor and you beat him nearly to death. Like, um, well, according to prosecutors, that one, I, I was going to include that in the list and I didn't because he was according to prosecutors really mad about a pile of refuse, like yard I, refuse. Well, there, there, there's the reason I know that I know that, but, yeah, but we ahead. can put in the recent attack on the, uh, Marco Rubio, uh, Right, the, canvasser, uh, right, right, the right, campaign right. worker, which, by the way, has been defended on Twitter by left wingers on the grounds that apparently that guy was at in Charlottesville in 2017, but was then canvassing for Rubio in 2022. Like that, in like the person who beat him up knew that he had been in Charlottesville and was punishing him for his role in that you know white supremacist riot. Um, but which gets to Christine's point, which is it's not defensible for anybody to beat the crap out of anybody. And maybe, and this is where you have to start getting, you know, saying unpleasant truths to people, even listening to this podcast who may not want to hear them. But when Trump at his rallies called for people in the crowd to beat up protesters, that was a crossing of a Rubicon. He yes. was already essentially the Republican nominee for president. And he was advocating that his supporters 
do violence to people who had had the temerity to come to one of his rallies and shout things out, you know, without a microphone. I'm not sure that anything like that had ever happened before then. And at the time that it happened, uh, it seemed like we were, it seemed like we were heading into a dark wood. Like this was, you know, this was a place that had no. But this is, could I, I'm going to interrupt, say that I remember the discussion around this. And I think it, it reminds me a bit of the discussion going on now after this attack on, on uh, Mr. Pelosi. And that's that, and it's, uh, I'm not, I'm saying this as a description, not as a, as, as an endorsement, but it's understandable that the reaction of the partisan reaction of those on the side being criticized for that kind of behavior. Like when Trump was called out for that appropriately, I, I agree with you, John, totally appropriately. That's not at all ever something a candidate should be saying, particularly in the moment when it could actually happen with a, with a large crowd. Um, everybody mistrusts that they are going to be given the benefit of the doubt by any news reports, by any officials. And so they are instantly on the other side defensively saying, oh, yeah, well, you guys do it, too. You guys do it, too. And this this battle back and forth, it's it's exhausting to the average person who I think shares our view that any political violence is bad. This is a bad idea. Like, don't attack your political opponents with physical force. Let's just look. Can we all agree on that? Most people would agree on that. But the media in particular has exacerbated this problem by fueling a narrative and and calling for things like the suppression of speech when an attack like this happens, because we're seeing that already post Pelosi attack. You know, oh, the problem is we've got to crack down on these websites or on these people who are saying this stuff that there's so little trust right now on the among the partisan groups that it's really difficult to have that kind of conversation. No, there, there is a grotesque double standard here that I'm not willing to just let go in the name of propriety because I oppose political violence in all its forms. Um, <clears throat> when Mo Brooks pushed out a campaign ad using audio from the congressional baseball shooting, he was savaged for it. He was attacked up and down because it was so grotesquely inappropriate to use that for partisan gain, to establish party allegiances, provoke some sort of partisan response on the part of his voters, which is exactly what Democrats are doing with this. The president has basically blamed Donald Trump for this. Now, listen, do I wish we had a conspiracy-free politics? Sure. We've never had a conspiracy-free politics. The United States of America has never had non-conspiratorial politics. It's not going to happen. We can wish all we want for a better world that doesn't exist. Fine. But to see the president of the United States essentially laid the blame for this act of violence by a paranoid lunatic at the feet of the Republican Party and solely to energize his voters ahead of an election. I'm not going to pretend like that's not happening. It's abhorrent. Right. So we do have an example, right, from, I guess, 12 years ago now, maybe 11, I can't remember, 11 or 12 years from now, before now. Of um of the horrible attempt at the assassination of of Gabrielle Giffords in 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 Arizona, um and the uh, instant rush to characterize the shooter, Jared Lochner, as having been triggered by things like entitlement Sarah reform, Palin's, huh? Entitlement reform, right? Or but Sarah Palin having a map of candidates that were being, you know, that Republicans were targeting for defeat in the 2010 election. And it looked like, it looked like a, a, a target in a shooting range. And so therefore he was to, being told to go shoot Gabrielle Giffords. Remember Marshall uh, metaphors? Which, 
Right. Anyway, we had to, we had to remove turn- martial metaphors from the language as though we, we haven't been doing this since ancient Greece. What are we going to do? Cooks can't use martial metaphors anymore. Literally, the line in a kitchen uses martial metaphors. Mm-hmm. Well, madness. So, right. And then it turned out that his psychopathy or his, you know, paranoid schizophrenia had to do with some incomprehensible idea about grammar and language and the use of language and was not political at all. And we still have to wait and see what the story is with David DePap, the shooter here, to see what motivated, because obviously while his, um, well, a lot of recent material apparently that he was excavated from his, you know, has a kind of QAnon, uh, Trumpist, anti-woke flavor. He also told somebody in the past two weeks that there was a an evil fairy who was whispering in his ear. So we don't, you know, like, again, we don't know what he knew, apparently, that he was in Nancy Pelosi's house and that he was... So he said, where's Nancy? And I'm waiting for Nancy. So that alone, but we don't know what motivated him. And that rush to judgment. Again, the problem is that we we can say, the way Christine said, we can say this shouldn't happen. But it is happening. And it is the impulse of everybody in this game to instantly make it happen. You have not just partisans, but these kind of like rank consultants who are now making bank on extreme polarization. I mean, there are a couple of people on the right on on, on Twitter who do this, whom I'm not going to name. And there are plenty of people on the left, including, you know, people who are getting $100,000 and $200,000 a week or a month from, from Patreon for their radio shows like that. This is, this is their bread and butter. This is the, the, the more, you can say, you see those guys are doing X, or you can see how it's, there's no stopping it. So then the, the question is, what is it about the culture that is making this profitable? Would it always have been profitable if if there had been something like social media before? Because I guess this is Noah's point. There's always, there have always been paranoid politics. It's just that they couldn't, the nat, the paranoia couldn't monetize couldn't, them so swiftly, though. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And you couldn't nationalize it. You know, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Like the QAnon conspiracy could not exist without social media because there would be no way for, you know, a guy in a basement in Texas to be sharing theories with a guy in a basement in Spokane. Well, mimeograph newsletters with- was the uh-huh. way they did that. Mimeograph newsletters, the Birchers yes. was was the example of this, right. and they weren't they weren't politically valuable, so they were jettisoned. It was a real right. real instrumental, yeah. uh, calculation was made but, there on the part of. But you can create these communities of like minded people uh, over this these machines that we are ourselves right now taping this podcast with, where we have our little community of four. We're looking at each other on a Zoom screen. Like that, that wasn't possible 15 years ago. Um, and so we, you know, there's no stopping it. The only thing that will stop it is if it's so noxious and repulsive that people, even these people are restrained. And that's what I think the, 
the deranged idea that we should we should suppress speech in order to stop these things from happening. Well, you just articulated a hopeful note that insofar as, you know, Democrats, the instinct Democrats are displaying to try to mobilize around this is that this is abhorrent, this is repulsive, the conspiracy theories that animated him are going to turn people off. I hope so. Good. I mean, if that's if that's their calculation, uh, fortunately, I don't think they're right there in part because there's a there's an apparatus on the right that really is legitimizing this kind of conspiratorial talk. And it's very popular. It's fashionable on the right. There are a lot of fashionable conspiracy theories on the left. Just about every act of racial violence in 2020 and 2021 was motivated by conspiracy theory. There is a conspiracy abroad to dominate and repress minorities in this country. The attacks yeah, on pro-life project is a conspiracy, is a conspiracy theory. theory. The, all the pro-life violence <clears throat> or pro-choice violence against pro-life centers is predicated on a conspiratorial notion that there will be acts of mass violence against women who want to have abortions. Well, but this is this is where the consistency of leadership matters, right? Because if you have enough leaders on either side of the aisle consistently calling out and condemning in the harshest possible language any act of political violence, whether it comes from their side or is targeted at their side, that's when you have leadership. And I think Noah's point about what Biden is doing right now is absolutely right. This is this is a this was an opportunity for him to actually be the person that he claimed he was elected to be, which is a healer, a uniter, not a divider. And he has not taken that opportunity. Now, is he as bad as Trump? No. But that doesn't mean that what he is is good right now in terms of what he's saying in the wake of this tech. Right. Well, I, mean, I think what, to okay. Noah's point, there's something very interesting, which is that the normalization of conspiracy theorizing on the left sort of keeps the conspiracy theorists on the left in a less violent arena, in a sense, because there's this sort of mainstream kind of uh, field in which you can play these things out. You can you can you can actually voice these textbooks on, onto schools, you know, uh, you can you can start up all sorts of investigations you could do. But it but so there's the the only outlet for the sort of equal kind of madness on the right um, or, or is is to be a sort of lone or part of a group um, activist. Um, I think where <clears throat> what I keep saying, like, you know, there's no I, I didn't mean there to be a hopeful note in what I was saying <laughs> about how people. Kind of stay I, on I, brand. I don't, I don't see. I don't see a hopeful note. Like everything else, I don't understand how we get out of this mess. But what I what I do know is that the the unequal way in which liberals and people on the left view their own misbehavior as compared to Republicans, um, not only has a deleterious effect on you know general the general political discussion. But it has a deleterious effect on them, and it constantly and consistently does. So, you know, we've often made fun of Margaret Sullivan, the former ombudsman of the New York Times and columnist of the Washington Post, and her people like her in the media who say, you know, we can no longer not take sides because the Republican they're they're against truth and science and they made COVID. I, you know, they everyone died because of them and everyone. And, and, you know, you can then at any turn show how every Republican conspiracy that they hate is kind of matched or, you know, uh, mixed and matched um, by comparable things on their side. And they just don't 
see it or hear it. And then they don't understand the potency with which that argument might help motivate people to vote against them or vote against the people that they want to vote for. Saying, I want to suppress the speech of people I disagree with is not a good, it's not just that it's not a good look, it's a bad attitude to go into an election with or to go to people trip because like then your own people are like well how do we argue against this you know how do we it's like we don't we shouldn't have to even come up with an argument they just shouldn't be allowed to make their argument and that's like a nice wonderful you know it's like in a certain type of you know dorm room religion debate where somebody says well, look, I mean, if you're going to say that you believe in, you know, miracle, that God p- performs miracles and we don't have anything to talk about, because I just that that's not true. Th- there are no supernatural events in the world. If there were, we would know about them. Or, you know, if you don't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, we don't have anything to talk about. Right. So it's like, OK, so that's the end of the argument. Like we can't even have an argument because you're saying that my view is illegitimate from the get go. That's politically dangerous for people because they need to develop arguments. Like they're, this is the whole thing about 2022. Like Democrats aren't making arguments about why they should be, why they should retain the House and the Senate and these governorships. They are saying we have to keep those guys at bay. And it's not that that's not a potent thing to say. But Republicans say, you did this and it caused inflation. You did this and it caused, you did that. You did the other thing. And they don't have answers. We, for months now, we've been saying, how, how, why can't they develop something to say about inflation? Now, maybe it's because you can't come up with anything to say about inflation, but you kind of have to. And then you have this th- these like little demons whispering in your ear saying, don't even do that because anybody who's making this argument is Ill- is illegitimate. Well, that's and that's the point, right? That that they act, the the Democrats actually make themselves look weak by saying the the response to this sort of conspiracy theorizing on the right, which is real, it's a problem. It's 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 a huge problem. The response isn't to say let's just suppress all of their speech. That's actually going to make the problem worse, and it also makes them look weak. What you should do, I mean, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? consistently and constantly point out like this is not the way it is this is not but be consistent so if your side has some crazy conspiracy theorists who attack say i don't know uh, a gay nightclub don't pretend like it's some sort of don't don't tell people what that what they see with their own eyes is not the truth and that has been a consistent problem on the left particularly during the trump years and and particularly among extremely powerful figures in the media and so the mistrust on both sides exists but it's for different reasons but I don't think that it the, the, the Democrats' answer is to say, look how crazy they are. Let's make sure they can't talk about anything they want to talk about. That's not a response. Well, if, that you're, is, two weeks, that's not a response. if you're two weeks out from a from a tough election cycle, <clears throat> you're going to want you, the consultants consultants around you are going to say you got to mobilize your voters. That's all you got to care about. So all that message is geared right. towards So fear your, your is base, a good motivator. Vote. It's a good one. But I mean, it could absolutely backfire. Not the best pollster in the world, but a, but CBS YouGov battleground tracker over the weekend said, feel, asked voters, feel like things in the United States are today under control or out of control? Roughly eight in 10 people said out of control. And among them, Republicans are winning uh, by 20 points. So you can say, you know, Republicans did this, Republican uh, 
uh, rhetoric is incredibly irresponsible and these people are fomenting violence left and right and we can't hand them the keys because it'll just be a hellscape. But it's a sense of out of controlness as a result of democratic governance. And we're talking about San Francisco. We're talking about a country that has dominated all three levers of government or uh, all three uh, chambers of elected government in Washington controlled by Democrats. You see, the sense of out of controlness is not going to redound to your benefit, even if you're saying it's only out of control because of them. Right. So this is all very discomforting. And so we should talk a little about comfort, if you don't mind, because uh, I know everyone's getting, I'm sure, very anxious listening to this conversation and wants to like go back to bed. And if you want to go back to bed, you should get yourself some bone branch sheets, particularly now that the holidays are coming, you know, because the most exciting time of the year parties, this, that, you know, you're constantly being pulled toward family and this and that you want to, you, you need, you need a good night's sleep and you need good sheets to do that softest, most luxurious organic cotton sheets from Bolin branch are the ones for you made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on earth. They make a difference. You can truly feel night after night. Um, Noah, you uh, are our resident owner of the Bolin brand sheets, and I think it's worth telling people that the sheets get better and softer over time, right? Because you've now had them, I think, for a year, maybe a little longer. Just about a year, I guess. And they're pretty much the only sheets that we use. And this testimonial, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not doing this for the cash. I don't get a cut of the action. Those things come out of the laundry and it's like a brand new pair of sheets. I'm not even kidding. And you throw them on the bed and it's and it's an incredible experience. And I look forward to washing them, washing them every week because they're like brand new. Designs and colors for every bedroom style, mattress size, all season sheets with this unmatched softness are also provided, come with a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all orders. And if you want to make a gift out of them, they come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box. Bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with Bowen Branch Bedding. For a limited time, get 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. That's bowlandbranch.com, promo code commentary. Why should Israel matter to you? That's not a question many Jews asked 50 years ago, but today, for diaspora Jews with complex identities and values, it's a big question. I'm Rabbi Lauren Birkin, Vice President of Rabbinic Initiatives at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and I'd like to personally invite you to join me for a new kind of conversation about Zionism. Together in a virtual community of learners, we will explore the big ideas, values, and aspirations behind Zionism and develop a deeper understanding of our relationship with Israel as 21st century Jews. My four-part series takes place on Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, starting on October 27th. Register today at shalomhartman.org forward slash ideas for today and check out our exceptional fall winter course catalog. Um, so Noah, Welcome you, are, to the conversation. you mentioned this uh, CBSUGov poll that says 80% of the country thinks that things are out of control. And of that 80%, 20%, like uh, Republicans are ahead by 20 points. These numbers are not matched by polling in individual races. We have new polls out this morning from the New York Times and Siena in the four key critical Senate races. Um, 
that's Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and I can't remember. Nevada. Now, Nevada. What? Nevada. And uh, Nevada's tied, and in the other three, the Democrat, including John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, is ahead, or is ahead. Um, which, uh, if that stands, I think means a 50, I think it means a 50-50 Senate. Um the way that the the way that things break because Fetterman would take the seat away from uh, the Republicans in Pennsylvania, and uh, if the if the tide race went to the Republican in Nevada, they would they would uh, cancel each other out, and then you would still have a fifty fifty Senate, which means that the Democrats would remain in control. Thing about these numbers is they are not they are not um, m- matching up with every trend line that we see in issues out of controlness wrong trackness uh worries about the economy that you know are 25 points ahead of any worry that democrats have that in which democrats are the leading beneficiaries of worry about which are like abortion and a couple of other things and yet this polling is not showing in these states that are going to be the deciders in the Senate are not sh- oh and Biden's under what Biden being 10 to 12 points underwater in terms of uh, approval so i can't tell whether we are on the verge of a historically bad polling error like a like a miss by pollsters that will you know that will make uh, 2014 look like uh, look like a you know a sandbox or whether these republican candidates are just so bad that the democrats in these states are defying gravity to remain even as close as they are not not to not to mention being ahead why not both i mean it can be both we can have a historically bad error and these candidates can be completely atrocious um Herschel Walker's a terrible U.S. Senate candidate. He should not be in the U.S. Senate. He doesn't deserve it. We should have better politics than that. We don't. Um, Mehmet Oz is not a good candidate. He's a wooden character on the stump. He's a wooden character on the debate stage. But he's also doesn't believe a word that's coming out of his mouth. And everybody knows it. And it's not like Democrats are pulling in. Adam Laxalt actually has proven himself to be a rather capable candidate. And he's That's Nevada. Well. That's the Republican in Nevada. Nevada. And Blake Masters is an absolute ideologue who uh, I don't know what he represents besides himself and his really uh, his, his theories of politics are unique, let's say, um, but probably not a great fit for his for his state. They're um, underperforming the fundamentals. Uh, and Democrats are overperforming them in these states. But in the end of the day, we could still see a, un- a uniform R plus five environment, which is kind of what I expect. And that will be reflected in their in their polling. I don't think that Democrats are going to be able to outperform the national environment. And any poll that suggests that they are, I take with a grain of salt. Um, we've seen the national environment come back time and time again in this cycle. Democrats have thought that this news story or this event or this blip on the radar would rescue them time and time again. You can't count on two hands how many times we've had those events. And the national environment comes back. And I expect the national environment will come back and suggest that we're in an R plus five environment, no matter what the polling says. Polling right now says we're in R plus two. 
I would expect three points on that. So, uh, so a lot of people are interested in this um, very uh, peculiar, very complex uh, 538 model. So the 538 model runs 40,000 simulations. This is called a casino in statistics. Runs 40,000 simulations uh, and sees, given whatever inputs it puts in with polling and things about what Noah calls the fundamentals, that is the economic, you know, the issues and how they benefit and don't benefit different parties. And um, over the course of the last two weeks or three weeks, the chances of Democrats continuing to control the Senate have have lowered from about 68% now to 48, uh, 52% with Republicans at 48, which they call a dead heat, meaning in 40,000 simulations, Democrats win 52% of the time and Republicans win 48% of the time. Now, what's interesting about this is that time is one of the features in this model, meaning as things get closer to elections, uh, trends start playing a larger role and the trends are favoring Republicans. Uh, it would be a moment of extraordinary uh, sort of like panic if at some point in the in the next week, the Republicans ended up at 51 and the Democrats ended up at 49, because that would sort of that would be the ball game. But here's what's interesting about what they say. They say that they have factored in a Democratic that this is Nate Silver, who was not a I mean, who started his career um you know like uh commenting on move on and howard dean and stuff like he is not he is not a conservative but he says they have already factored in a systemic polling bias in favor of democrats of around three points <laughs> somewhere between two or three they haven't won't say exactly what it is but it's already factored into their formula so that if as Noah says, it's actually an R plus five rather than R plus two. That's already reflected in their model. And that that's that's one of the things that has brought the Republicans to this point where they're they're at dead heat in the Senate, but not over the top. I only I only mention that because because um people keep saying this thing about how what Noah said, which is, you know, you can see that Democrats seem to be overperforming, but by the time election day rolls around, the polling keeps will will not reflect a, a, a Republican surge, and they say that there is a Republican surge. I mean, they say that their that their model factors in the Republican surge. It's already there, uh, at least, or that the polling is mis mismeasuring. Now, what's interesting about the New York Times Siena poll, and this gets to where conspiracy theorizing can get into anybody's head, including mine. So I noted that the polls finished in the field. There are four different polls, four Senate races, either Tuesday or Wednesday of last week. And yet they didn't release the polling until this morning. And I immediately thought, hmm, that's weird. Why did it take them so long? Sometimes, you know, they, these are people who are used to releasing polls in an hour. Like, so... What are they doing? Well, maybe they're tweaking, they're waiting 
why would they be tweaking their the weighting of the polls, where the, which is where they apply formula to try to get a sense of what the electorate is and then apply it to the raw numbers that they got to fix them because they don't trust the numbers. Maybe they got too many Republican respondents or too many Democratic respondents or something like that. Who knows? So I'm like, hmm, well, maybe they didn't like the numbers as they came out and they were tweaking them. And then I contacted a, somebody I trust totally uh, honest uh, poll expert who said, A, it's totally normal for it to take four days, particularly if the polling, it's been difficult to do the polling, which we know it is because they have these incredibly low response rates. So A, it's totally normal. B, do you have any reason to distrust Nate Cohn, the Times leading polling expert? Um, we talked about a lot on this podcast. Would he be the kind of person who might, you know, like fuss with the numbers and see like sometimes you have to lengthen the time of polls, which is the case. The Nevada poll is was seven over seven days instead of three, simply because you just didn't get enough responses. And so you shouldn't read anything into that. I was already in the it's a New York Times Siena conspiracy to ballast Democrats for just another week, just not to have the floor come out from under them. And I'm not a conspirator. I'm not conspiratorial. So just to give you a sense of how much this has become part of our conversation, where it's like somebody's cooking the books, you know, there's the books are being cooked here, people, and it's really not fair for me to think that. But uh, given now, Noah, you can't see this. Noah just shrugged and rolled his eyes and turned his head away. So, Noah, do you want to roll my eyes? I, it's I'm OK. I'm with you. It, Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I thought well, it, maybe you were going to say, eh, I don't know. Well, I was in my head about another polling conspiracy, which is actually um, probably has more heft to it, but it's a lefty conspiracy, which is all these polls that are contributing to averages in these in uh, tight races are from Republican pollsters. Trafalgar is everywhere. Insider Advantage is everywhere. Tony Fabrizio's outfit is everywhere. Where are all the... Why are the Republican pollsters flooding these averages? They're creating this environment that maybe doesn't even exist. Um, and that's, you know, that's what the left is talking themselves into. Well, there's an there's a um, explanation for that, too. And I don't have any evidence to support it, but I'll throw it out there anyway, which is that a lot of times when you get a consultant that's doing a poll for you and you don't release it, it's because it's bad. Partisan pollsters don't necessarily release all the polls that they do. And if there are a lot of Democratic pollsters in the field that aren't releasing their numbers, it's because they're bad numbers. Again, I don't have evidence to support this, but you don't have to release. It's the evidence of absence, by definition. Noah. Huh? By definition. Yeah. But no one's forcing Republican pollsters to release all these numbers and Democrats to not. Right. Well, it's interesting about Trafalgar is interesting because it's this firm that won't really explain how it, does its polling it kind of explains it but then it doesn't give you the internals and stuff like that and so there was all this suspicion of trafalgar in 2020 and all this and then in the end they got i think they're an a minus rated pollster by 538 which really didn't want to rate rank them as a minus because they don't fulfill all of these technical polling requirements to be a good pollster it's like also very weird transparent they have it they got two-thirds of their races right 
and yet still have an A minus. Whereas I've seen pollsters get like Bs that have better records than that. Well, because they because they the pollsters that get Bs obey the dictates of the you know they are transparent and they show their regression analysis and they they you know it's this whole look polling is a crap statistical field. Let's just let, let's just make this clear. Like the problem is that you gather this data. So there is this raw data, but every pollster says the raw data is bad. So we have to do something to massage the raw data based on, you know, some formula to make sure that it conforms better with the nature of the electorate or the ages of the whatever, which then means that every pollster is basically taking raw data and massaging it and, and screwing around with it. And that's not kosher. Like one year, they may get the formula right, but that that's no, there's no guarantee that they will get Past the formula performance right. performance is not indicative time. of future yeah, results. Exactly. And, and we get sucked have, in every time around. I mean, no matter how well, because, no matter how bad the last one is, as 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 the as election day gets closer and closer, we 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 home in more and more. Well, because we don't have anything to go on. But it's interesting because, you know, somebody like Nate Silver, again, will talk, will defend polling, and then he will talk about, and certainly did talk about in previous years, a phenomenon that he calls poll herding, which is that you'll note that toward the end of any campaign, pollsters start to converge on the same numbers in a way that defies randomness. In other words, the pollsters shouldn't, without knowing what other pollsters are doing and not paying attention to it, they come up with very, very similar numbers. And he basically was saying that they're doing this knowingly, that they that they futz around with their numbers to make sure that they're not outlying and that they're part of a general consensus on where the election is going because they're afraid of being humiliated and driven out of business, as some pollsters have been over the last 10 or 12 years. I mean, there are firms that did polling like you wouldn't, you know, that we can't even survey USA. I don't even remember the names. I mean, there are these firms that were like everywhere doing daily polling, and then they just vanished because their stats were so bad or so, I, I, maybe not. I don't want to say it's Survey USA because for all I know, that's still in the field and I just it you know, is, committed yes. slander. It okay, so I apologize to Survey USA. But but I mean, there are 10, 12 people that firms that disappeared, have disappeared because their numbers were so bad. Or that just so stopped my, doing it. We were talking the other day about Gallup, Gallup's tracking poll from 2012, which was a for people who do this on a daily basis was like a ritual. It was yeah, a, we every waited. day we at one o'clock, refreshing our browsers <laughs> for the one o'clock. This weird number. communal experience that we yeah. all did, and they and got it, it wrong. And, they got it wrong. and just stopped doing it. Yeah, I mean, this I is... mean, I think their last poll was forty nine, forty nine. Romney, Romney, and Obama, and of course, Obama won by four. So, but do we cling to it each time because it's all there is to go on, or because it's fun and engaging, even if it's not particularly useful? Well, both, you know, like like astrology. I mean, hey, it's better. I, like I mean, it's better than astrology in the <laughs> sense in the sense that, you know, they're if we assume that they're telling us the truth and that they actually called 800 people randomly. Though it may have taken 40,000 or 50 to get to those 800 people, but they're calling 800 people randomly and getting answers and that over time it's been proven that if you really apply randomness to this 
you get a better sense of things and reality than you do otherwise. And it's better than just listening to spin doctors say, this issue is really, you can see people really care about climate change. I mean, it's actually very important given the way the media atmosphere is to say, okay, you all think that climate change is a major issue, but 2% of people say that climate change is their leading concern. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe it is a little like astrology, but at least it gives you a kind of, the week ahead is sort of like, you know, your lucky day will be, it's not going to be the upcoming day in November for Democrats, I think, but it is it is useful as a corrective. And, and because again, here's a, here's a point where social media and other uh, internet enabled uh platforms allow regular people to look at polls in a way they couldn't before. It's no longer uh, there. The gatekeeping has has uh, gone down a little bit. I will say the other the other sign of quiet panic or maybe not so quiet panic among Democrats was the reaction over the weekend to uh, post Pelosi attack that uh, Republicans should stop running ads. <laughs> they should stop campaigning because this violence happened, because some of their ads actually say, let's send Nancy home or let's let's you know, let's get rid of the Democratic majority. And I, f I found that so surreal. Like it, it was almost laughable, except that I think they were absolutely sincere in thinking that Republicans should all pull their ads in the, in the you know, run up to the election this week because a uh, madman attacked uh, the husband of the Speaker of the House. But they think but Republicans should pull their ads, period. Like right. <laughs> it's one of the funny things. But they had a reason, even... an excuse right. to say but that. Abe, now. <laughs> we haven't talked about the Elon Musk takes over Twitter uh, which I guess happened Friday morning, and the hilarity that has ensued over the over the last couple of days in relation to Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Tens of thousands of people on Twitter saying they will leave Twitter simply because Elon Musk has taken it over. I strongly recommend getting off Twitter, though I'm not off. I just don't post. I read Twitter because I find it helpful, but I don't post. Um I haven't posted for three and a half years, and I, it's been very healthy not to, in my case. I'm not talking about Noah, not talking about Noah and his posting, but it's been healthy for me. Um, but we're once again in this atmosphere where like, people who work at Twitter, who know that there's been a takeover, are posting, like they're, as they say, S-posting about Elon Musk and Twitter, and then they're getting fired, and they're like, can you believe I was fired? Like 10 different people are like going on Twitter saying, you know, all right, you know, it's time for us to gum up the works of Twitter. And then like two minutes later saying, well, I just got fired. It's like, what is wrong with you people? And I think I have an answer. It gets back to what we we're talking about in relation to the media talking about, you know, Margaret Sullivan and everything, which is. We don't expect these institutions to conform with our priors. That's what it means to be a concern. We don't expect big institutions to take our side. We've spent our lives watching Hollywood movies that that you know, TV shows that you know are very dismissive of our values and our principles, and we've and you know publishing how and this and that and the other thing, and we that's what we expect. They do have no such comparable expectation. And if they think that some institution of theirs is going in a different direction, it's like somebody killed their mother. It's like a, it's a, it is like a national betrayal. As, as, as uh, some tweeter uh, who, I, who I don't recall said, he said he, he, he felt like there's a fascist takeover of his country. Um, Twitter is his homeland. 
Um, and, that, and that is that is the sense. But, John, as you say, if Elon Musk drives you off of Twitter, he will have done you an immeasurable favor. <laughs> you should thank him. He will have changed your life. That said, I, I stick to my point that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, sick of Musk's presence in our lives at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's done a, a billion wonderful things. I'm sure he'll do a billion other wonderful things. Um, but he likes to troll, I think, more than he likes any particular principle. He showed that yesterday, uh, or perhaps it was two days ago, when he responded to a, a Hillary, Clinton, Hillary Clinton tweet with a tweet linking to some totally bogus uh, uh, media outlet that went um, full conspiracy theory on the Paul Pelosi story. Yeah, and then he deleted the tweet. He, he deleted it hours later. Sure. But he has impulse control problems. Well, but, okay, but, but the, but the cultural, the cultural reaction, the cultural reaction to yeah. Musk right now is yet another example of what happens on the left when anyone who's not of the left or devoutly progressive captures any small, tiny corner of any major institution. We saw this. Do you remember the whole deal about Ben Shapiro's shows and stuff being popular on on you know Facebook and everything? Like it's like, oh my God, they're actually successful. We have to crush them. They're dangerous. And and again, if you look at the sort of whole uh, mass of social media or the mass of mainstream media, it is a, always a very small portion, but it, it angers them that when they don't have 100% control of these institutions. But there's a real yeah, symbiosis that's going on here because Musk does like trolling people, but they like being trolled. There's people like Tristan Snell, who's a very popular uh, attorney with you know almost 320,000 followers. Hold your ground like a Ukrainian. Mary Trump. We need to stop seeding ground. Stay, as in don't leave Twitter. Mark Elias, the Democrats' top election uh, attorney. I am here until he kicks me off. Hashtag resist. <laughs> They're all just play acting, and they love it. Right. But by the way, I mean, this gets to, you know, this thing. I think we talked a little bit on Friday, which is 500 publishing professionals demanding that a major publishing house not publish a book by a sitting Supreme Court justice, a memoir of a woman who is not yet 50 years old, who has seven children, including one with special needs, and has made it nonetheless to the Supreme Court. A role, the definition of a role model and a fascinating <laughs> human story. And they don't like her for unspecified reasons. Because her she's not a liberal. Was, right. And they're like, we we should not publish this book. Well, who the hell is we? Are do you own the publishing house? No, some of you work at the publishing house. Go work somewhere else. You know, you don't own the place you work. You work at a place someone else owns. That's how life is and it is an amazing we use the word entitlement but there is just this bizarre relationship that a lot of these people in media broadly understood who are like under 30 have with the places where they work they think they're their universities I well think. this is this is part of where the if they had thing. a temper tantrum they introduced a major. You have a major. You have a here. Here's a new major for you. Leave me alone. I'm the college president. Like but the, they were paying customers there. They are now employees somewhere else and they don't know the difference. 
this is a fundamental piece of the anti-work movement. Why should you spend your days, your hours and your energy and time uh, working for a place that isn't 100% aligned with you and your values? That is, that's there that you are therefore being exploited. And, and this is unfair. This is, and this is not a good way to spend one's life. I mean, Republicans do that too, with their whole, why, why would you ever buy a coffee brand that doesn't support pro-life causes? Like, well, because I actually just don't care about that when I'm buying coffee. Um, but that's something that is now very, but it's, this is moral merch. Moral merch is, is a phenomenon on both sides of the aisle that you literally have to wear your politics on your sleeve at all times. They get something out of it. I don't know what it is. All right. Well, um, we'll be back tomorrow. Dan Cedar will be joining us so we can preview in advance the Israeli election, which takes place tomorrow and is uh, possibly even more interesting than 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 our election. Uh, certainly just very, very, it's a very interesting election if you haven't been following it. And we'll try to make it clear to you. And then on Wednesday, Jamie Kerchick will 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 join us for some hijinks and tomfoolery. So with that, for Noah Abe and Christina, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.